0: Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline podcast. There are five ways to specialize. You probably know this, but as a quick review, if you don't, you can focus vertically on an industry. You can focus vertically on an audience. You can focus horizontally on a platform. You can focus horizontally on a business problem or you can customize how you deliver your services in a uniquely valuable way. I call this Blue Ocean specialization, for lack of a better term. I have done my absolute best to document the constraints and limitations and problems inherent in platform specialization. So that's when you focus on a technology platform. Examples include uh, you know, languages like Ruby on Rails, platforms like... Um, AWS, or, um, you know, products that are sort of platform ecosystems like Salesforce. So are just three examples of many. Those are all platform specializations. And I tend to describe this way of specializing as a young person's game, because it only takes about five to seven years for a platform to move from brand new hot shit to fully commoditized. And when it's fully commoditized, your formerly unique value proposition is very not unique and very not valuable. When your skill set is fully commoditized, you have buyers saying things like, you know, uh, we'd love to work with you, but these developers in Croatia are like a third of the price, and we just are going to have to go with them because what they're not telling you is we can't perceive any difference between you and them other than the price. That's what it's like to have a skill set that's fully commoditized. There is a way, though, to make platform specialization work better, which is to be a technology expert who is very interested or sympathetic to the business implications of the technology. Today, I'm going to share with you a super interesting conversation I had with Corey Quinn. Corey is a cloud economist, and through this conversation, I think you'll get a very visceral sense of what it's like for a technologist to be interested in, or actively sympathetic to the business implications of the technology. I think you'll also find very interesting how Corey generates something like 10 inbound leads per month. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's somewhere around 10 leads per month. And with a business like Corey's where you maybe only need, I don't know, three, four, six clients a year to have a really great year, that's plenty of lead flow. I don't think it's unfair to describe Corey's approach to lead generation as simply being helpful. But obviously, there's a bit more to it than that, and you'll hear Corey describe those details in our conversation. Corey also started an email list that has grown largely through organic means from zero to something like 5,000 subscribers in about 18 months. Why has it grown this well, without, especially without heroic list-building efforts? Well, aside from Corey publishing content that combines a great sense of humor and really strong thinking, it's because the list is a valuable service to the community that Corey focuses on. Corey also has a podcast that uses a bit of a different approach to the content, but it's also seen very similar, very impressive growth. So that's a preview of my conversation with cloud economist Corey Quinn. Overall, I think you'll get a nicely detailed picture of how platform specialization can work quite well if you combine technology skills with the right mix of business impact, generous service, and courageously specific focus. Corey Quinn, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Philip. So, Corey, for the few folks who don't know who you are, who are you and what do you do? Yes, I'm heard there's a few people in the far-flung
1: territories. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm a cloud economist, which is a job title I made up myself because it's comprised of two words nobody can define. I wind up fixing the horrifying AWS bill
0: for my clients. So what kind of companies have a horrifying – I mean, is any AWS uh, cloud company at scale have this problem or – you know, where, where do you find it the most? I would say that even companies that aren't at scale tend to have this
1: problem. If you yeah. get three people who use AWS into a room and get them talking, it doesn't take more than about six minutes for the conversation to turn to the convoluted billing aspects of what AWS does. Mm-hmm. It's a point of shared suffering that doesn't become less of a problem as companies continue to grow.
0: So how did you end up where you are today? Like, how far back does your history with AWS go, for example?
1: (laughs) Into the mists of antiquity. But (laughs) in this iteration, a little under two years, I spent a fair bit of time using AWS since roughly 2008, 2009. And invariably, as I move from company to company, both as an engineer, an engineering manager, and I suppose as a consultant as well, I kept running into the same type of problem, which was the bill is obnoxious. People are screaming about it and make the numbers smaller. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something I enjoyed working on. It was a distraction from what I was being measured on professionally. And in hindsight, I did a really crappy job at it. It was the perfect definition of a problem that I would have thrown money at someone to make go away.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Let's see. Can you kind of unpack a, like that to your experience? What what kind of jobs did you have during that time, or were you self employed, or how did this kind of unfold?
1: This is really my first serious stint with self employment, but I was running. Uh, operations and engineering teams for a number of companies in the fintech space mm-hmm. i was engaged through a larger consulting agency and dropped in via parachute to a number of companies having a variety of different problems that were inevitably cloud-based in one way or another mm-hmm. and it was a constant exposure to i guess the ways that different companies did things that were common problems but sort of were implemented in different ways across the board. One of the things that sort of stuck out to me, sort of things that sort of stuck out to me when I went through this process of how do I identify a position was mm-hmm. what I brought to the table was an in-depth knowledge of how AWS worked. And I was broad across a wide variety of cloud computing categories. How do I pivot that expertise into something that resonates as an expensive business problem. Because, hey, I'm a DevOps consultant who knows a lot about cloud. Well, yeah, there's 17 people in any given room who could fit that description. Mm -hmm. It's hard to differentiate.
0: So when did you, was your transition to self-employment like sudden or did you kind of ease into it? It was unexpectedly sudden. I left my last job and
1: figured I would take about four months off to figure out what I wanted to do next. And that lasted three days. A friend had a problem in a cloud environment that they wanted help with, and, well, it's not like I was doing anything better. And yeah. I accidentally found myself gathering clients faster than I expected to.
0: So how did that, how did that part unfold? Like, and what I'm trying to untangle untang- here is, when did you start using this term cloud economist let's focus on that for now (laughs) sure that that was a couple of months later
1: where i'd done a few i guess terribly conceived projects i was working hourly i was Mm -hmm. positioning myself as either a generic consultant or oh i'll help with regulated workloads in aws environments which i can do and there's interest for it but i hate the work Mm -hmm. so describing myself as a cloud economist came out of this place where I did some digging, and there was virtually no one in the space who fixed the AWS bill from a position of a consultative advisory place. There are a number of software-as-a-service platforms that purport to do this, mm-hmm. but they lack judgment, discretion, and an understanding of the factors that drive a company to get to the position it's in where they bring something like that in, in the first place, they tend to more or less be undifferentiated amongst each other. They're being eroded from underneath as Amazon natively improves its own tooling. They all answer the what Mm -hmm. I tried to answer the why.
0: So how did you do that research on the competition? Was that just Googling around or what else did you do? I had a bit of a heads up so I had a bit of a leg up on that particular
1: problem because I started off having been tasked with solving this problem before. I had a rough idea of what was out there, and every consulting company on the planet will pop up and say, Sure, we can do that if you mm-hmm. ask them about an engagement that looks like this, mm-hmm. but no one was positioning as solving this particular expensive problem. And figuring out then the terms that people did use, well, we reduce the cloud bill, we cut the cost, we optimize your bill, we help with assessing your cloud infrastructure. I mean, there are some companies out there today that will do a project like this completely free. The downside to it is that their solution magically requires a project for 500 billable consultants for the next 18 months to sit in your office and fix these things for you it it that felt like a bit of a conflict of interest and i had no interest in pursuing that path Mm.
0: got it so okay so a few months in to this self-employment stint you're talking about yourself as a cloud economist what, what was that like the first time you said that to someone? Did they, they laugh? Did their eyebrows raise? What kind of reaction did you, did you get to that self-applied label?
1: Rolled eyes when I was mentioning to someone who had no idea what I was doing. But as soon as I mentioned it seriously to someone who was mentioning they were having a problem with their cloud infrastructure bills, I said, well, I'm a cloud economist. I focus on this specific problem. And they didn't laugh. They didn't roll their eyes. They leaned in and said, tell me more.
0: Nice. So, great. Were you at any point concerned that that would be the only person who would have that reaction or that the market would be too small? I'm
1: dealing with roughly three to five inbound leads every week for this. And every time one of those comes in, I'm still in the back of my mind, I have this irrational fear that this will be the last person that ever has this problem. It's provably untrue, but it's... There's still a conceptual gap that I have yet to make at an emotional level that this is sustainable. This is working. This has built out something that has resonated in the market. I have a wide variety of clients who will say wonderful things about me if you ask them. And somewhat best of all, because this is such a narrow niche, if you are a large company who has billing problems and you start talking to your peers at other companies, there aren't too many conversations that you have to have before you're pointed in my direction.
0: So you've got a sort of reputational footprint that's big enough that some of these leads are sort of word of mouth referrals, it sounds like. Is that about right? Indeed. I think
1: all but one of my clients right now were word of mouth. I have one client that I consider something of a unicorn that found me on Google, filled out the contact form on my website, and now is a great client. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, four or five leads a week, how many of those tend to close just as an overall sort of percentage, just so we can get a sense of how serious those leads are?
1: It's across the board. As far as a percentage goes, uh, relatively small, but I'm also very good at weeding out improper fits up front. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who wants me to sit down and write a bunch of tooling for them or implement a bunch of code, that's not what I do. And that's not going to lead to a positive outcome. Also, very often I wind up speaking with well-intentioned engineers who are offended at the size of their company's cloud bill, Uh but they lack the perspective of what their company is hoping to achieve to contextualize it appropriately. It's a six-month bounded project that's chasing a $2 billion market opportunity, and there are 50 engineers working on it. Okay, great yeah, we're spending $60,000 a month on that and it should only be $30,000. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Your engineers are embezzling more than that in office supplies every month. That's not going to define success from victory for what you're doing. So right now, great attitude. Optimize once you've found market fit and you know you're going to keep this around for a while. So helping guide people to the realization that it's not an engineering problem, it's not a finance problem, it's a collaborative discussion between those two groups is often something i wind up doing almost as a community service
0: yeah where i mean where did that ability to have that to be the diplomat in those situations come from or or let me phrase that differently cory do you see yourself as siding with the business but being sympathetic to the technical side or vice versa like how do you see yourself fitting in as a consultant I
1: have a foot in each world, and I don't ever view it as an oppositional Mm -hmm. type of situation. It's not a conversation where there's a side. Presumably, unless you work at a number of very terribly run companies, you don't show up in the morning hoping to do a crappy job today. Mm -hmm. The entire room is focused on a particular outcome, but they're speaking different languages. They have different KPIs that they themselves care about. They're focused on different ways of achieving the company's goals, how do you wind up building to a consensus? How do you wind up in a scenario where finance is able to articulate what they need from engineering and engineering understands what finance needs? There are a number of companies out there where the person who can spin up $50,000 a day's worth of infrastructure isn't allowed to see the bill. The person who gets the bill is four or five organizational levels removed from the person who influences it. Hmm. And in some of my engagements, I introduce those people for the first time, where despite working for the same company, they've never spoken.
0: That's so interesting. Where do you see the pressure to reduce the bill usually come from? Or is it really just all over the map?
1: It generally
0: starts off
1: at certain dollar figures that companies are spending because Mm -hmm. at certain points the amazon account rep will reach out and offer a more formalized relationship there are times where it crosses certain thresholds internally where someone's internal radar starts going off and if you take a look overall cloud bills don't go down they only tend to go up Mm -hmm. i don't propose to change that in fact the vast majority of my clients one year post engagement are spending more than they were when i started but they understand where it's going it's being spent much more efficiently and that growth is so that increase is being driven entirely by organizational growth that's not a terrible thing as you get more clients it will cost you more resources to service those clients
0: right that makes sense Okay, so it, it sounds like it's, it's, it's my attempts to simplify this are <laughs> ill-placed. It sounds like a pretty it's, complex problem sometimes.
1: It is a deceptively nuanced problem space. I will admit, when I started this, my entire philosophy of, oh, this will be the easiest sale in the world. You spend a lot of money on your cloud services. I'm going to come in and make that number smaller. You'll be very happy, and then you'll pay me money for it. And it, I don't think I've ever had an engagement that was that straightforward or simple. I've had engagements where I will drop off a laundry list of low or no engineering fixes that will reduce on average 22% of the bill as a first pass, Mm -hmm. and I am thanked profusely. The engagement is closed out, and they do none of it. They just have that report sit on a shelf because it's no longer a burning priority. That's something I've come to accept as a consultant. I can't drive the decisions that my clients make. Right. All I can do is advise them to the best of my ability, and what they do with that is up to them.
0: That's interesting. So what is that? I mean, how does that reflect on your value proposition? So if you're, if you're talking to a lead and, I don't know, they're on the fence or, or they're just sort of curious about how this is going to pay back, are you still saying, well, there's an opportunity to reduce the bill, but it may not be that simple? Or how do they think about the value of hiring you from the client side of things? My, my value proposition, sorry, I guess my
1: positioning statement is I fix the horrifying AWS bill. Right. And that's carefully chosen. It manifests itself in two ways. One is the obvious, oh, the number's high, I make the numbers smaller. Right, And that's true. I do that, but it's an artifact of the second, more nuanced understanding. And that is an organizational misunderstanding. I help understand, model, and predict what that bill is going to look like, allocated appropriately across various project groups. But from an engineering manager perspective, last month the AWS bill was $3 million this month that same bill is four million dollars and suddenly the cfo is pooping an actual abacus and kicking their door (laughs) off of hinges screaming (laughs) now the natural response is it's because you spent a million dollars you shouldn't have that's almost always immaterial to that conversation the cfo is having a fit because it wasn't predicted it wasn't modeled was this a one-off increase in the bill or is this the new normal do they have to go back and refactor their predictive models does this change their unit economic story are they going to have to issue guidance because now it costs more than they thought to serve each customer that they have what's causing the bill increase so the real value to the business is understanding and observing what that bill is being driven by and a lot of times that fact itself is not well understood by my buyer so having these conversations look like a lot of the – pretend I'm stupid for a minute. Why do you care about the bill? Oh, okay, you care because your boss cares. Why does your boss care? Oh, because the CFO is yelling at your boss. Great. Why is she upset by that? And going down the rabbit hole of figuring out why, 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 it becomes pretty clear that there's not a clear path of communication. Even having those why conversations early on begins to get towards solving the problem.
0: I kind of get it. Okay. You help with IT governance. That's the more nuanced part of the value is that there's no governance process for something where you can click a button on a website and spend a million dollars accidentally. Right. There's purchase orders for hardware. There. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. well Go there ahead. are
1: guardrails that you can put it in a cloud style environment that might okay. be a chargeback, showback model. Absolutely. Okay. And I also try to avoid the term cloud governance, just because if you say that to someone in an engineering or IT organization, they run the other way.
0: Okay. I, can't say
1: I blame them having been on some governance projects that mismanaged early in my career.
0: Okay. Okay. So that's not quite the right model for what you do. No, it's,
1: it tends to be much more of a first phase assessment where it's, let's take a deep dive into your bill. Let's understand where the low hanging fruit that you can save money on is, which is generally fairly easy. Then past that let's also look at how your applications are using this environment okay why is it doing it that way is there an opportunity for them to do something more cost efficiently yes what you built made an awful lot of sense when you're trying to prototype something and get it up now it has eight million users a day maybe optimizing it no longer saves pennies but tens of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. so that becomes a different conversation and as i'm working from that angle i'm simultaneously having the discussions with finance and accounting about how they think about this how are they amortizing these things how is the entirety of the aws bill being displayed on their L? are they claiming an and D tax credit in which case <laughs> what they're claiming needs to be able to withstand an audit so let's mm-hmm. make sure that there is documentation around these
0: things got it Okay, so part of what you're and it's not, Corey, that I'm pessimistic at all about your value proposition. I just want to break it down for the folks at home. So part of it is cost reduction, clear, you know, clear path to an ROI on hiring Corey. But part of it is also like uh, predictability, risk mitigation from a legal perspective. There's there's a sort of business side to this that's a little more nuanced.
1: Very much so. And that tends not to come out very strongly during the initial engagements, but it's almost entirely what my follow-on work looks like.
0: Did you sort of discover all the facets of this value proposition as you were doing this kind of work, or did you have a clear vision of it before, or was it something in between? (laughs)
1: I've been doing this for at least 18 months now, and I'm not convinced I've discovered all the facets yet. I continually learn new things with every engagement. It's no two companies are quite alike, which is fascinating because the underlying tools that they're using to build these things are identical. AWS isn't offering a different service to you than it is to me. How we go ahead implementing that, thinking about it, allocating the spend, assigning it to a cost uh, to a a cost category, Mm -hmm. that winds up being something that's unique on a per company basis. It's, It's almost a mapping organizational structure exercise past a certain point, which is not something that would have sounded appealing to me, but from the angle I'm approaching it from, it's a
0: blast. Yeah, I can see that. And that's really interesting to me. Where did you get either the expertise or the confidence to just dive in and figure this out as you were doing it? On these like legal issues and organizational structure issues and financial reporting issues. To be
1: very clear, I tell every client that I am not an accountant and I am not an attorney. That said, I have taken a deep personal interest in both. Mm -hmm. I come from a finance background and I married an attorney. So I tend (laughs) to be steeped in this just from my personal life. And it gets me thinking in certain paths and in certain patterns. The as far, the hard part for me when I started was virtually everything that AWS does is predicated upon there being some economic shift. Every feature enhancement, everything that gets rolled out invariably has some economic impact. And keeping up with all of these things is maddening. There's no single source to track this down. So mm-hmm. I had to start tracking it myself. Mm-hmm. Early on in the course of my business, I realized this might not be a problem that only I have. I couldn't find anything that aggregated this. So I started a newsletter myself last week in AWS and I mix the assessment of what the current week of enhancements means with a fair degree of sarcasm and snark, mostly to keep myself interested. Otherwise this could be fairly dry. Right, And that has started to resonate. I just hit 7,000 subscribers to this thing, which for a year and a half is not a half bad outcome. There are sponsorships for it. And it's also serves a tremendous word of mouth marketing channel. So I now have a marketing channel that is also its own profitable revenue source that also continues to feed even more information to me. People reach out with, Oh, I saw this particular, I guess, uh, aberration on a bill Mm -hmm. and I didn't understand what I'm seeing. Have you ever seen something like this? Wow. Well, no, I haven't. Let's go diving into that. It it's sort of a reinforcing feedback loop that, that continues to benefit everyone involved. And that was something I did not see coming. If I had, I would have started something like this years ago.
0: Okay, so let's let's dig into that. Now we're kind of talking a bit more about how you how you generate leads, how you get that footprint expanded for your reputation. So you started the newsletter, is that 18 months ago, about when you were diving into this as a specialization?
1: Yes, okay. 72 weeks ago is the time of this recording, but I
0: took a week off for New Year's. Oh, well, you have to reset the counter. No, I'm kidding. Um,
1: Absolutely. I didn't even miss an episode the week my daughter was born.
0: Oh, wow. I, wrote,
1: I had a placeholder in advance that linked to some interesting content. See you next week.
0: Belated congratulations. So, um, so for the folks at home again, what's the newsletter called?
1: Last week in AWS. com.
0: com at the end. Okay. So, how? What was your idea at first? Was I'm having to do a lot of homework to stay current. I'll just share that. Is that was that the idea, or what was it?
1: Absolutely. I've never been a believer in hoarding knowledge. I'm good at the things that I'm good at because people help me out with by freely sharing knowledge when I was getting started. That's the sort of thing you can't ever repay. You have to pay it forward. I have absolutely no desire to hoard that. So if I learn something new and interesting, my first inclination is, well, how do I share this to people? Because it's probably not just going to benefit me. And that attitude has really led to a, almost a community growing around the newsletter. It has a Slack team as well with uh, approximately 5,000 participants in it now that it's the largest single AWS community on the internet that I'm aware of.
0: Wow. Okay. So let's, let's get kind of granular about how this started. So what did you do? Uh, Like kind of walk me through it. You set up a, a landing page can you kind of break it down to that level sure. of steps? Sure.
1: I iterated this very uh, in a few different ways. I started off with the absolute crappiest MVP I could possibly put together. And that took the form of... I wrote the thing in Google Docs. I sent it out through Drip, which uh-huh. is a somewhat... Problematic email service provider. Yeah. I had a landing page done through lead pages that just drove people to a sign up link with some copy that was terrible on it. Mm-hmm. And I hoped for the best. Okay. Because I, I had certain numbers in mind that if I didn't wind up uh, getting at least 200 subscribers in the first eight, eight episodes, eight issues, right. I was going to turn it off because at that point, it's just sad. It's okay, I'm emailing a few of my blood relatives and a couple friends who feel sorry for me. Okay. I pre-announced it two weeks in advance on Twitter, uh-huh. and thanks to a few people who picked it up and carried the announcement forward, the first issue went to 550 people on the nose. Okay, it has rather steadily gained about a hundred subscribers per week ever since.
0: Okay, what have you done in intent? Uh, there sounds like there's been really nice kind of organic referral spread. What have you done to promote it yourself?
1: Great question. I've tried paid advertisements and there's a whole bunch, there's a whole conversation we could have around that, but it all comes down to the same outcome. It didn't work for crap. Okay. There was no positive outcome, no measurable difference. I've been to conferences with 3000 people attending and had a sticker for this thing in every bag and gotten 20 signups from that. Okay. It, the, the value proposition wasn't great. And I want to say I predicted all of this success, but I didn't. When uh-huh. the first time someone reached out with, hey, can we sponsor your newsletter? My response was, you want to give me money for a, to, to a blurb in this newsletter? Well, of course you can give me money. <laughs> Why not? How much money you want to give me? And it very quickly turned into something where people expressed an interest. I somewhat recently have pivoted how I do sponsorships. It's no longer you give me copy. It's you give me copy and a link, and then I will very gently and politely improve some of that copy. So it better fits the tone. It resonates with the audience. And I find that that does tend to increase engagement with those sponsored links. Hmm. So it's a bit more than a sponsorship, but a bit less than a marketing opportunity.
0: So 18 months in this thing has grown can you do you feel like you could attribute some level of um client work to this newsletter? Like how does it function there in terms of uh I don't know, lead gen for your business or uh trust building or what have you?
1: It has catapulted my brand awareness into the stratosphere with respect to the AWS community
0: at okay. large. It's Th- those resulted. are not those are not small words. <laughs> no, they are not.
1: I'm frequently invited to speak at various events, both from other providers as well as by AWS themselves. I am mentioned frequently with people in the context of this guy really knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I gave a talk somewhat recently. It was a keynote at a DevOps Days. And Mm -hmm. one slide in there that a lot of people thought was a joke wasn't. I am considered an AWS expert. Because two years ago, I said I was. And that's not much of an exaggeration. I knew Mm -hmm. what I was doing. I knew how these things worked. But every time I sat down in front of it, I felt overwhelmed and stupid. And I'll be very honest with you. I still do. It's overwhelming. There is far more than any one person can fit in their head. But... Now, at least I know how to quickly find the answers that I'm going for. I have a relatively deep back catalog stuck in my head of tips, tricks, ways to go about implementing things in an AWS context, capabilities, what service does what, Mm -hmm. but it's massive. We've now crossed a point where I can talk about an AWS service that doesn't exist and not get called out on it when I'm talking to Amazon employees.
0: Have you done that or... um... Oh, multiple times.
1: (laughs) The trick is to look really convincing and serious. Conversely, I'll describe actual AWS services and then ask them if it's real or if I'm messing with them. I'm about 50-50 on those.
0: That's just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, anytime I look at in the AWS console, the list of services, I I don't know if it's a panic attack or what I feel exactly, but it's definitely overwhelming. It's like eating at the Cheesecake Factory. Here's the menu. Hope you have some time. Right. I'll be back in an hour after you've read it. (laughs) Okay, so the newsletter worked really well. Is it it fair, Corey, to call this uh, a sort of surprise success? The newsletter, I mean, specifically?
1: Yes and no. I was not expecting the success and I wasn't really prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And I was curious as to whether or not this would be a one-off. So I decided after much urging and prodding from a variety of people to try something similar and see if lightning would strike twice. About six months ago now, I decided it was worth an experiment that I would start a podcast. Okay. And I've seen... Almost exactly the same level of uptake, awareness, and adoption of that podcast. It takes a very different tone. It's not sarcastic in the least. Every week, there's one guest. There's an interview back and forth. Mm -hmm. We edit it. We make them look good. If they're from a large company and they desire it, I let them see the finished episode to send to their PR department. And I've never had a problem with that. But I've had VPs from Amazon, Google, and Microsoft as guests on that show. Mm. And it winds up buying credibility. It it first gets me in front of other people's audiences, but further it lets me gain a sense of authority by talking to people who are movers and shakers in the industry. Whereas I'm sitting on the curb as the heroes go by clapping. Mm -hmm. It's one of those transformative things where I'm in no way dishonest about that. If I were to play this on my podcast... Everyone would smile, nod, and continue doing what they're doing. I've made no secret of this, that I am effectively a nobody talking to the greats. All right, But that resonates. That winds up increasing the, I guess, brand awareness of what I do. Now, the problem, of course, with branding and doing it in a very indirect way like this is when a client comes in, quote-unquote, off the internet, out of nowhere, well, how do you hear about me? Oh, I, I just knew about you. They've maybe seen some of my conference talks. They listen to my podcast. They are a subscriber to my newsletter. They follow my ridiculous antics on Twitter. And they talk to me on public community Slack teams. And then oh yeah, whenever I when they have a a bill issue, they're starting to think of this in terms of, oh, I should just go talk to Corey about this. How do I attribute that lead turned into a prospect, turned into a client back to any one of those channels? Mm -hmm. I don't think I can.
0: Yeah, Alan Weiss's marketing gravity concept comes to mind because it's it's a sort of gravitational pull, but what caused that exactly? Uh, it seems like it would be hard to say.
1: And it seems like so many marketing departments are fixated on answering that question. And I understand where they're coming from, but from my perspective, at my scale, it does not matter in the least to me. All I know is that the these properties play off of each other and reinforce each other, and it. Turns into an ever increasing source of business. And I'm okay with that.
0: So tell me a little bit about your usage of humor. You've got this great dry sense of humor, and some people are probably going to find it baffling. And I think most people are going to find it super entertaining. Are you using that intentionally? Is that just, you said you did it to keep the newsletter interesting, but I imagine it plays also a role in the enjoyment of, for the reader. What, what's your take on that?
1: I wondered the same thing last year. I ran a survey. I'll run an updated version this year, but mm-hmm. the results are last year in AWS.com is where that blog post lives. Mm-hmm. And I wound up aggregating feedback from almost a thousand respondents at the time. And I was told that I was too mean to Amazon. I was too nice to Amazon. I should stop with the humor and just give them the news. The humor's terrific. They don't even care what I'm talking about. It, everyone is going to have an opinion. And fundamentally, I've got to do what I do. The humor for the newsletter is fun, and it lets me exercise creativity. Mm-hmm. But there are a few rules to it. I make it a point never to punch down Mm-hmm. any context, I make fun of AWS because they are teetering on the edge of being a trillion-dollar company, Amazon as a whole. Right. They can take my slings and arrows. <laughs> if I'm crapping all over a five-person startup, that's not funny. That's me being a jerk. Yeah. I registered a domain, twitterforpets.com, as a mythical startup, specifically so I could have something to make fun of that wasn't someone's life work. Mm-hmm. I make sure that the jokes are generally across a range of accessibility where you don't need to know the service I'm describing to an intimate degree. But if yeah. you do, there is something there for you in the way I wind up layering the humor on top of it. Conversely, I have almost no humor to speak of in the podcast because it's very easy with some guests where if you're making sarcastic funny jokes and they're not able to hang with that it's not a fun experience for them it doesn't come off looking very good when it's published and it's it doesn't wind up making them look great which from my perspective is the entire purpose of having a guest on a podcast
0: Mm -hmm. so what's the name of the podcast forgive me if i already asked that No, no, of course.
1: It's screaming in the cloud. It is not AWS specific. It Mm -hmm. is agnostic to all providers. And it tends to be a fun labor of love. I enjoy the conversations. I don't enjoy audio engineering. So I throw that over the wall to a company that handles it for me once I have the recording in the bag.
0: Right. So um, that's been about six months in. How often do you publish the podcast?
1: That is published once a week like clockwork. I tend to record in bursts. When sure. I launched, I had 12 in the bag, and I was a little far out over my skis. It's right. somewhat dangerous to be recording conversations about technology that aren't going to see the light of the day for three months.
0: Ah, yeah, the sort of reverse buffer problem. Too much buffer and exactly. the content ages.
1: Yeah, right so, now I have three or four ready to go, plus two or, two or three at any given point that are in various states of PR review for larger companies. And you never know when those are going to come back. Some people are thumbs up, good to go. Others are going to take months.
0: Okay. So what, what have you learned about landing guests that, you know, you're on the curb watching the parade go by. They're in the parade. What have you learned about landing those kind of guests, the sort of higher profile, more famous people?
1: Ask them. It's... every guest worth having on a podcast has not only been willing to do it but they've thanked me for the opportunity I mean, a great example of this is Jeff Barr, the chief evangelist of AWS. Mm-hmm. He is, if you ask anyone who's ever met him, they will tell you some version of the following sentiment, that he is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He's extremely humble. Humility is his effective personal brand. But he has a unique voice and speaks for AWS. He is the sort of person who can walk into a room of AWS aficionados and get swarmed by the crowd because they all want to meet him. But he was gracious, kind, very generous with his time and thanked me for the opportunity to appear on my podcast. That was a transformative moment for me. If I reach out to someone who's a luminary of industry and they don't have a similar approach to it, I've got to be very honest with you. I'm not that interested in talking to them Mm -hmm. because fame is the sort of thing that happens to people. You don't have to lose your soul when that happens. I'm I'm learning that watching it happen to people who are good at things. Mm.
0: That makes me think of Matt Cutts, who, you know, used to like be this person who was a god <laughs> in a way, if, I mean, for good and, and bad to people who were in the SEO game, right? Because the words that came out of his mouth had this incredible outsized importance. But, you know, he's just a guy, right? <laughs> He's just a guy who ended up in this job at Google, not to take away anything from his accomplishments, but it's just interesting when the sort of power of a company like Google or Amazon or Apple sort of magnifies the importance of a single individual. Oh, absolutely.
1: And I will consist, I will continue to uh, state for the record that every person that I have had the pleasure of interacting with at AWS has been extremely intelligent, extremely focused, dedicated to making customers happy. Except Ted, you know who you are, Ted. (laughs) It's it's been a very, I guess, transformative experience meeting these people who build these things. And I've had roughly a consistent five to 10% of my readership since almost the beginning has come from Amazon employees, where some people occasionally take things uh, as an attack on what they've built, which, okay, sometimes it is. That's fair. But very often, they like the perception of, the, I guess, the channel back of what the world really thinks about things. There are a couple of products now where I get a f- relatively consistent stream of email from their product people of, we've released this feature, do you like us yet? And it's, it's fun having those conversations. It's, <laughs> that's awesome. I appreciate the fact that you'd ask. They uh, you asked me, it's like, yes, in many cases, you have completely changed my perspective on your product. In other cases, it's, I appreciate that you'll engage with me. It's still really bad. But I'm not here to tell people what they want to hear. It's If I lose my authenticity, then I may as well just go take a job in someone's marketing team. Not that marketing can't be authentic, but marketing can never, I guess, disparage its own company's
0: product. Yeah. So I've heard three, th- three primary things for lead generation. You know, you've mentioned the email list, the podcast. You've mentioned speaking. What else are you doing, at least in terms of a proactive, intentional lead generation channel?
1: Far and away, the most prolific channel has been word of mouth, and mm-hmm. it came from the positioning statement. It took tweaking and refining. But when I tell someone that I fixed the horrifying AWS bill, I get three responses. And note, I say AWS, not Amazon, or people start asking me about how when they buy socks. But <laughs> it's, what's that? Okay, I can have that conversation.
0: Yeah. Oh, awesome.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a great market. Okay, that's good to know. And you're right. It is a great market. Or the third oh, my God, I know who you need to talk to. Mm-hmm. And that's the Rolodex moment that winds up, in many cases, leading to, if nothing else, a wonderful
0: conversation. Right. So do you do anything else to intentionally make use of word of mouth other than being extremely courageous and patient in all of this? Any, anything else that you do to intentionally make that work?
1: Um, there's There have been one-offs here and there. I wind up occasionally doing sponsorship swaps with other newsletters where I'll mention their newsletter, they'll mention mine mm-hmm. that tends to do reasonably well mm-hmm. there was a Twitter hashtag that I started a while back that started trending which went reasonably well, uh, AWS Drinks describing various Amazon services in the context of something you would order at a bar and what happens to you as a result, I mean, you had <laughs> Amazon executives getting in on that one so that was kind of neat Yeah, but it it's mostly comes down to continuing to focus on raising my own profile within the community and as much as I want to say, here's a quick and easy shortcut to do that, you can only do it by adding value. It, uh, You can't pretend to be an expert well enough to get someone to sign off on something. That tends to fall through. I still consider myself far from mastery of the AWS ecosystem. But comparatively, it, as it turns out, I really... That is, I guess, an inaccurate assessment. I just look at the entire breadth and depth of this entire space, and all I can see is how much I have yet to learn.
0: So if AWS disappeared tomorrow... Three quarters of the internet
1: would stop working for starters, and then everyone's got a really expensive problem for me to focus on.
0: There you go. Right. I guess it's what... I'll help you migrate to another cloud platform. (laughs) You're sort of anticipating my question. How would you reapply this business model, maybe to a a different, or the same expertise, same kind of thing that's worked? How would you reapply that if AWS was out of the picture?
1: People have asked me that question a few times now. And usually it's either the way you just framed it, or instead it's, well, what if GCP or Azure Beat mm. AWS in the market right well, well first that 's going to be a gradual shift that 's not going to be one day Amazon now irrelevant, right and there are going to be signs right now. People ask me that on stage. I ask people, okay, quick show of hands. who here is an AWS customer, and everyone raises their hand mm. that 's why i 'm focusing on this right now. if there's another provider that takes over or, be- or achieves parity. I can pivot what I do and map it to their ecosystem and their offering a lot more quickly than they can overtake AWS. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. The potentially more likely risk factor longer term, and my word do I hope this happens, is AWS improves its native tooling and positioning and storytelling to a point where Any given customer can figure these things out for themselves, maybe with a little bit of help, maybe not. Mm -hmm. In that situation, there are two possible outcomes. One, I'm still going to be able to provide expertise and perspective on this, and there's value to that. But assuming that's not true, there are a lot of other very painful problems in the AWS ecosystem that I would love to spend more time focusing on. I just can't do that in good conscience while this problem is out there, just based upon both how lucrative it is and how pervasive it is.
0: Well said. Um, Okay. I think I could keep you here for another hour with questions, but I think I'm going to wrap this up and ask Corey if you can run down again the list of... um, You know what? Actually... I, I'm totally going to change direction here. I had one other question I wanted to ask. How long do these types of projects take to close? What's the sales cycle look like? And uh, tangential to that, who ultimately con- tends to make the decision to hire this Corey guy? Let's do it. It varies. There okay. have
1: been some closed deals that have taken over a year to execute on, and mm-hmm. I've had some close within a week start to finish. Okay. It really depends on who I'm speaking to, how pressing the problem is. I've had several clients come in, ask me for a proposal, had a bit of an eye-popping sticker shock because Mm -hmm. my projects are always billed the same way. Fixed fee, due up front. Pay me Mm -hmm. whatever terms you want. Once I get paid, I'll start working. And I've had a couple people get sticker shock and run away and say, no, we're going to do this ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then not too long thereafter, come back with questions of yeah, so is that still available to us? Right. It turns out this is really complicated and hard. Yes. It, and I do, I do appreciate where they're coming from. They're not wrong for this. When someone charges a fixed fee up front to solve a problem like this, it's, it's a bit eye-popping, but I always tie it to a guarantee. If I don't knock at least X dollars off of your bill, I'll give you your money back. Mm-hmm. I've never had to give people their money back. This is a model I'm very comfortable with, and it reduces the risk to effectively nothing for my right. clients the bigger expense and the bigger ask is their people's time when i'm talking to an engineer that's time that they're not spending writing code or doing the thing that they want to be doing so i need to be respectful of that fortunately i come with my own built-in engineering expertise as i go
0: mm-hmm. and so also it sounds like the buyer is pretty diverse pretty um you know not a homogeneous same kind of buyer each time is that right Absolutely. I see
1: general trends coming in. I've had a number of CFOs or functional equivalent and divisions wind up bringing me in before. Mm -hmm. I've had engineering heads. I've had, in some cases, engineers champion me. I've never met an engineer with signing authority to bring me aboard. So there's always the champion slash buyer slash person to directly benefits question. Mm -hmm. But that just tends to shake itself out during the sales cycle. No one is going to go on my website and start hunting for a buy button. That's why the call to action is send me a note. We'll talk.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, Corey, this has been such a great opportunity to get an insight into the, I just think fascinating and impressive business that you've built. So thank you for that, and can you, I guess, just run down the list of all the ways that people could get into your world via email or podcast again? I think folks will benefit from hearing that again.
1: Absolutely. The consulting website itself is quinadvisory.com, and if you go to the top navigation bar, it will navigate you to the podcast or the newsletter or contact me or the blog where I opine on these things. That's really the, I guess, the central point. Screaming in the cloud in your podcast app is a great way to find me. Last week in aws.com is also not a bad choice. And Quinny Pig, that's Q-U-I-N-N-Y, Pig, on Twitter, if you enjoy me making ridiculous inside jokes about cloud computing. And ranting.
0: The, that next to the insight in your lead generation is my, my second favorite thing. Corey, <laughs> thanks, thanks for being thank. on the show, man.
1: No, thank you for having me, Philip. I appreciate it.